0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram, at Zibby Owens, and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's sponsor is Blueland Cleaning. Blue Land is an eco-friendly cleaning products company on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic packaging. They offer their products as a set of reusable bottles along with cleaning tablets that you simply add to warm water to make a full bottle of hand soap or cleaning solution, also founded by a mom with a three-year-old son. My kids loved making all these products with me, and now we have these amazing glass bottles and all different color hues uh, that make cleaning a little bit more fun, especially during quarantine. Donna Hemmonds, born in Jamaica, is the author of award-winning novel, River Woman, and most recently, Tea by the Sea. Her short fiction has been featured in Caribbean Writer, Witness, and other publications and anthologies. She received her undergraduate degree from Fordham University and her MFA from American University. She currently lives in Greenbelt, Maryland. Welcome, Donna. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Can you please tell listeners what Tea by the Sea is about?
1: Well, it's a story about a young mother whose baby was taken from taken from her at birth, and her search to find his child.
0: That was a, that was very concise. <laughs> How did you come up with with the idea for this book?
1: Well, I initially started writing a a story or just a short piece about a woman who goes to a church and refuses to leave. And after I wrote that, I had to figure out why she would not want to leave this church, what, you know, she was looking for. And so a few weeks after writing that first piece, I happened to be in Jamaica and it was a Sunday evening playing Scrabble with my parents. And there's a program that comes on on the radio at, I think, seven o'clock in the evening on one of the stations. And it's a program called Sunday Contact, where people call in to look for family members or friends who, you know, they just simply can't get in touch with. And a woman called in looking for her son. And what she said was that the father had taken the child and she had no idea where they were, where they had gone, whether they were still in Jamaica, whether they had moved to America or Canada. She just simply had no idea. And I believe the child at that point must have been about seven or eight years old. I I don't remember the details. But once I heard that, I said, this is my story. This is what this woman is searching for. This is why she's in that church and is refusing to leave.
0: Wow. It's so funny how novelists think about life events. I I feel like I interview often people who are like, I heard this story and I knew I had to write a whole book about it. Whereas I feel like I would hear the story and just hear the story.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I I think you you pick up so much from from everyday life. Mm -hmm. And even without even being aware that that is what you're doing, that something that you hear about, something that you know will be the basis for a story or will be even a small piece in a story. And sometimes it's those little things that actually give you the foundation for something bigger.
0: Were you actively on the hunt for a topic, having published your first book already? I've heard about sort of the sophomore slump type of thing where it's hard to figure out how to follow up the success of a first novel and your first novel, which I didn't read I'm sorry, it's called River Woman, but this novel I read which was amazing. Yeah,
1: well I guess the funny thing about that is that in some ways, I guess you could say I had that sophomore slump, but in some ways I don't know that I did. And uh, I probably went about things a little bit differently from some other writers I've heard about, who people will talk about how many books they wrote before they published their first book. And in my case it was a little bit different, River Woman was my thesis for my MFA program. And I published that, I think, about a few years after I finished the program, maybe three years after I finished the program, that book was published. And that was the first book I ever wrote. Wow. So I, I think, so between River Woman being published in 2002 and now 2020, with T by the Sea coming out, it you know, certainly is a long time. But I wrote two other books in between. And those books, I have been revising and revising and revising. And I think I finally got to a point now where I will be finished revising at least one of them because I finally figured out what the story was, what I wanted to tell. But with Tea by the Sea, it, it was, a, I guess, in some ways, a slightly different process. I figured out what I wanted to write, what the story was, and I just simply wrote it, which in some ways was probably the same thing I did with River Woman. I knew what the story was, I wrote that story without thinking too much about structure and everything else that seemed to have been the hang up with the other two in between.
0: When you started the MFA program, had you written short stories or what what made you drawn to enroll in that program to begin with.
1: As an undergrad, I studied English and media studies and I took some fiction writing workshops and I knew that I liked writing stories. I didn't necessarily know how to go about writing something fuller and bigger. And I started writing this thing, which I thought was was a novel. And I had to figure out, well, how on earth do you finish a novel? How do you put it all together? And I I knew that what I needed to do was uh, an MFA program.
0: Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Do you feel like you actually got specific skills that helped you write the books? Or was it more, like, what, do, what is the be- the best thing that came out of an MFA program for you?
1: Just for me, I think that what I learned from an MFA program is really how to read. Mm, and it's not necessarily so much how to write, because I think uh, the... Biggest part about writing really is knowing how to read your own work and knowing when to, when to edit, when to stop editing, what to take out, and really understanding how a, how a reader reads and understands your story. And I think that's what I got from an MFA program by, you know, the numerous workshops that I had to take. I heard what other people were saying about my work, what they were looking for. And after a certain point, I began to anticipate those things myself. So I would look at something that I wrote and ask myself whether somebody else would understand it. What else do I need to say? What? How much more do I need to explain? Am I explaining too much? And that's how I really understood how to pace a story, more by learning how to read it as opposed to really being taught how to write.
0: So interesting. That's,
1: yeah, it is. And I think I, I remember one professor saying at one point where I I think I may have had a note or I may have said, well, you know, I knew somebody would ask that question. And I, I think the response was, well, you're learning how to to write because you're beginning to anticipate those things. And I think once you get to that point, you have a better understanding of your own story and what it should be doing.
0: Wow. Although you have been working for like 20 years on these two other books, so.
1: Well, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's uh, you know, I think it's just it's that process. I, it's the process. No, I'm, I'm totally No, I, I fully understand that, but, but I think that for me, and I think it's something that I am also beginning to realize that the other two books, once I finished River Woman, I think I started thinking too much about how I wanted the books to be structured. Mm. And I stepped away from, well, this is a story about X person and really started thinking too much about the, uh, the structure. So I got hung up on, on shaping the story as huh. opposed to just simply telling the story, which I guess goes back to what I learned early on. It's, you know, yeah. what does your reader want or your reader anticipate? And, you know, I, it's a lesson I think I just need to keep in mind from now on.
0: Well, this was like a heartbreaking, but also inspiring story The emotions that you have, the idea that you could have your baby just snatched away at childbirth. And the scene that you wrote where she comes back, Paula, right, Paula? Plum. Plum. Oh, my gosh, I'm losing my mind. The scene that you wrote where Plum comes back to the room that she had been in with the woman who she rents the room from. Oh, right, right. And it was just, like, apoplectic. Like, the baby's gone. And the, the two of them were just, I mean... What a scene. What a moment. I mean, the desperation and how she looked everywhere for the baby. And then just when she couldn't find the baby, just one day just said, I'm going to lay down on this wall and hopefully the sun will just basically kill me. I mean, that's right. like, oh, my gosh. How did you tap into that feeling? Like, I, thought, I started thinking to myself, well, has she had something like this happen? Or how does she, this feeling of hopelessness and despair, how did you get to that so well? I don't know.
1: I haven't experienced that myself. But I think you, you know, as writers, even though you may not necessarily experience that thing, there are other things that you can pull from. But I can't think of anything that I have experienced to that extent. But I think in some ways, though, that the book itself is also about, it's it's about the loss, it's about the search. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also about that longing to belong. And I think in a number of ways, I believe that it's the kind of story that I feel like like I'm telling over and over and over. I shouldn't say over and over, but it's a story that I'm telling and I I think it's coming from my mother's story in some ways that what I'm telling is 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 her story. And my mother basically grew up with her grand aunt and her father. And when she was born her mother quote unquote, returned her to her father, so to speak, so her my my grandmother had three boys as well, but she kept the boys and so what my mother had said at one point was, you know she gave away the daughter but kept the sons and so I think you know I keep looking wow. at and thinking about. How does that child feel about not having that mother? How does a mother feel about not having that child? So I think in some ways, that's the story that I feel like I'm telling. That's what I'm reaching back to. That's what I'm trying to understand. And a lot of what I write, there is something I'm trying to understand. And for me, it's that that loss of a child not having a parent or a parent not having the child. So really, you're like
0: Plum's daughter in this whole scenario. Um, I'm kidding. I but guess in some ways. In some ways. Okay. <laughs> Do you think it made your mother or Plum parent differently for the children that she ended up? Right. No, it's not. It wouldn't be Plum's daughter. It would be Opal's daughter. Right. right. Yeah,
1: that would be. Yeah, it would be, so it would be Opal's right. daughter. It would be Opal's daughter who would be right. you. Yes. Yes. I guess so.
0: <laughs> Even though that person doesn't exist. <laughs> that
1: person doesn't exist. But Just follow along with me here. Come on, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> but theoretically, yes, it would be. But I think it makes not having that parent, I think, makes somebody parent differently. And, uh, and and I think in this case, Plum certainly yes. did when she had her, her um, twin daughters later on. Yes. She never left them, right. never let them out of her sight yes. because she didn't want the same thing to happen again. And, you know, there is the flip side of that, which could be, you know, like over-parenting. But I I think she did a good job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So when Plum first gets back to Brooklyn, so she was in Jamaica, Mm -hmm. her parents had sent her there. I don't want to give away the whole book, but she was sent there by her parents in a form of abandonment she felt. They thought it was for her own good, and so— Stranded her there. But then she came back and she had lost her daughter. She was very young, 17, and she had her baby. You write, she didn't care about other people's stories or past lives because her mother was trying to make her feel better about it. She had her own storied past and present, and now she had a firm conviction that despite her parents' claim, the fairy tale endings, the scripted Hollywood kind, weren't really available to her. Hollywood's movies had told her that fairy tale endings weren't available to a dark-skinned girl and an immigrant at that So tell me a little more about that passage. Oh, and then she like gives up all her dreams and says she wants to settle for a simple, ordinary dream, a job that paid for food and shelter.
1: Right. I think, well, there are two parts to that. One is that... There is, for so many of us who are not accustomed to seeing ourselves in, you know, represented, whether it's in literature or in, you know, in movies from Hollywood, we have a different viewpoint of the stories that are told. And I'll tell you, when my one of my nieces was about three or four years old in preschool, one of her friends told her that she couldn't be a princess because princesses are don't look like her. And, you know, it's something that children internalize from a very young age. And it was surprising. I don't know that any adult told that child that that was the case, but that was something she internalized based on what she saw. So if a child, and I think that girl she was either white or or very light skinned. But if she was internalizing it and she saw herself there, then imagine what it is for a person who is, you know, darker skinned, Mm -hmm. who does not see herself at all. So that was one piece of it that I think that Plum had grown accustomed to not seeing that, had grown accustomed to seeing stories of of success for somebody else who didn't look like her. But she also saw her parents working very, very hard. And I think at one point in the book, she talks about not being able to go to dance classes because yes. her, her parents were always working or always tired. So for her, it's a different reality. And the, the second piece to that is something somebody told me at one point was that, you know, you didn't have to like a job. You just simply had to do a job in order to, to get by because that's all that you wanted, enough money, to be able to to live your life but i mean my approach is just completely different because i think i need to enjoy whatever it is that i'm doing <laughs> but i think that's the reality for some people where you are an immigrant and that is that is your your sole role here is to make enough money to either send back home to take care of your family members or your relatives or to make enough money so that you can then go back home at some point to live your life in your in your home country and That was what Plum was seeing around her, was living with. So for her, it wasn't about dreaming and trying to be something. It was about just simply trying to exist at that point. So much had already been taken away from her that she didn't see how she could continue to dream.
0: Interesting. By the way, I never felt like I looked like a Disney princess either. (laughs) I mean, there are no, like, five to (laughs) slightly overweight, you know, short, brown, haired princesses. Like, I never thought, like, oh, yeah, Cinderella, that's that's so me, you know.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And I think now we're beginning to see so much more that not everybody, every body who's reflected as the hero in movies looks the same, which is great. It's, you know, it's what we need to see. It's true.
0: So Lenworth, the man, the dad in the book, Mm -hmm. I felt like at times— you were making him almost sympathetic. Like, could we understand perhaps why he did this? And did he really maybe do this for a good reason? There was a train of thought where he was thinking, oh, well, she was young. She should, Plum should go off and enjoy her life and not be saddled with a, a baby at such a young age. And yet he goes on and, well, I I won't give too much away for what happens with him later. But do you feel like we should have some sympathy towards him or just do we hate him? Or what did you, What do you think?
1: No, I think you should have some, some sympathy. I I think that everybody, no matter what you do, you have some good in you. There's something, and I I couldn't make him be all bad. I mean, mm-hmm. there just had to be something redeeming about him. And I think he had noble intentions at first. What he actually ended up doing was certainly not good. And, I mean, there could have been, you know, certainly should have been other ways in which he got to do what he wanted to do. But I think there was... He had noble intentions, Mm -hmm. and for him, a lot of it really came from the fact that he had seen his mother and he had seen his sister, their lives in some ways stopped because they, one, had children, or they were depending on a man for support. And he wanted Plum to not become his mother and not become his sister. And that's noble. I mean, I have to admire somebody who thinks like that. But at the same time, what he did and how he went about doing it, I think, was just, was, ended up being the opposite of what he intended. Because he wanted to make sure that she, Plum, could make choices, but he took away her biggest choice. And... I mean I I don't know if that's forgivable. I leave that up to readers to decide.
0: <laughs> Do you have children? Oh, yeah. No, I don't. This is just like a, a, a fairy tale fantasy nightmare situation.
1: <laughs> it, it is. It it is. Yeah, and I don't know anybody personally who has, you know, had a child taken away, but I certainly have seen enough people who have lost, yeah. you know, whether it's a, you know, a parent or a person who has lost a child and you know, like seeing how they respond to that and how they deal with that.
0: So tell me a little more about your writing process when you're sitting down and going over and revising and all of that. Are you at a coffee shop? Are you in your, are you in bed? Like, tell me, give me a visual. No. What, how do you write? And do you have like papers everywhere? Is it all the structure in your head? Well, all the structure is definitely
1: in my head. I don't outline. I usually just start with a character. I have somebody or a place that I am interested in, like in this case, Plum had decided she was not leaving this church. And I, you know, begin from there, and I just keep adding bits and pieces to it until it begins to shape itself into something that looks like a, that feels like a a novel, that feels like a book. And generally, I think I have a little bit of a sense of where I want the story to end. So very early on in the process, I wrote what I thought would have been the last line of the book. So I know where I'm, I'm, what I'm going towards. I don't necessarily know what comes in the middle, and it, it can be dangerous in a in a lot of ways. But part of the process for me is discovering something. And I think if I already know every single thing that's going to happen in the book and I'm not discovering anything, then the joy of writing it is just simply gone. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that's why I have difficulty writing personal essays, for instance, because I know in some ways the outcome. And if I don't have something in the middle to discover, then I don't, there's not that joy for me in terms of writing that essay. And also in terms of where I write, I'm usually writing at home. Coffee shops don't work for me. I need quiet. I need peace and quiet. I need to not be distracted. And it's very easy to get distracted. So I, I can't do coffee shops. But I'm usually writing at home at sometimes at four o'clock in the morning or five really? o'clock. Yeah, with t the sea. that's how I got this book done. I, for some reason, kept waking up. At four o'clock in the morning or five o'clock, and when I couldn't go back to sleep, I got up and I started writing. And were you were you
0: working during the day somewhere else?
1: Right. So yeah, I was working full time, and I just simply got up, wrote for an hour or two hours every morning, and then got just dressed and went to work. Wow! And it worked because there was there was nothing at that point that would have been distracting me. There were no phone calls to make. I you know, wasn't cooking. I wasn't running off to do something. I wouldn't turn the TV on. I just simply went downstairs sometimes. The only light was the light from my computer screen. Nothing at all that was distracting me. And I just wrote. And, you know, I think for me, it's just a perfect time to write because there are no distractions. Or I am not creating distractions right. <laughs> for myself.
0: What is your day job? Is it related to writing at all? Or?
1: Yeah, for, lo- for the longest while, I started out as a business journalist and then moved into corporate communication. And so I, you know, wrote speeches and did a whole range of corporate communications.
0: Excellent.
1: I'll keep that in the back
0: of my head next time I'm writing <laughs> a speech. I might have to call on you. So what's coming next for you? You're going to finish these two other books. Yes, I am. Actually, one, <laughs> one is pretty close. And I,
1: finishing up the last um, bit of edits, I think, on that one, or what I hope will be the last bit of edits. And then there's the the third one or well, one of the two that I'm finishing up. I don't know what numbers they are anymore, but that one I have a sense now how I'm going to retell that story. I have written bits and pieces of it, but not the full thing. So I, I'm getting there.
0: Okay. I hope. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors?
1: Read, read, read. I think that. There are so many things that we as writers pick up when we're reading a book. How, an, how another writer puts a story together, um, what that per, the choices that person makes. And I think that as readers, if we're reading not just to enjoy the story, but reading to see what somebody else does, it helps you as a writer get better. And um, that's the first thing. And the second thing really is to not give up, to understand that a lot of it is out of your hands and the market will change, but whatever the market is doing is not necessarily something that you should be paying attention to because your story will always be your story. And there is it's if it's your story to tell, then you will have a way to tell it and you will find a way to tell it regardless of what the market is looking for or what the market is doing.
0: There's one question I wanted to ask earlier. Mm-hmm. You did such a great job of creating a sense of place. when they go to Jamaica and the the house that Lenworth ends up with in the beginning and how everything looks there. And then you contrast it so well with the clanging buses, subways and loud noise of Brooklyn. How do you think you capture those places so well? Because I felt like I was really there when you were, when I was reading it.
1: I think it's by being there, by paying, by paying attention to it. And, uh, you, you know, it, I think, too, it's one of those things where there's so much that you pick up when you're just simply walking around without necessarily knowing how you're going to use it later on. And I think it was the same thing you know, with this book that uh, a lot of it, um, you know, I left Jamaica when I was 16. So but I still go back and forth. So there are bits and pieces that are in here because there are things that I remember from my childhood. There are things that I have, you know, saw as an adult that, you know, will make it in a book. But I think to one of the reasons that I did that is it's perspective. Plum has the perspective of Jamaica as somebody who was one just visiting Jamaica and somebody who lived there. So some of the things that she talks about are things that visitors would be seeing. Your average everyday Jamaican is not looking at the color of the sea. You know, when you're coming down, you know, you're winding down a mountain. You're more concerned about the road itself and what the other drivers are doing. You're not necessarily looking out to see you know, how blue the sea is or the, the skyline. But Plum was able to see that because she is a visitor at some point. And she was also able to see some other things about Jamaica because she lived there. And so she had observations that a visitor wouldn't have. And in, and it's the same thing when she comes back to Brooklyn. She had lived in Brooklyn, had stepped away from Brooklyn. And when she comes back, she's able to see things differently. She experiences Brooklyn then as a visitor when she returns from living in Jamaica. And I think all of us probably experience our lives like that. If you go back to whatever town you grew up in, you really realize, one, it's either much, much smaller than you thought it was, or it's bigger than you thought it was. And there's just so much else that you begin to see. And I think, too, for me as a writer, that I find that it's easier to write about a place when I'm no longer living there than it is to write about it when I'm there and Maybe for that reason, since I'm not living in Jamaica full time, I can write about Jamaica in a way that I don't think I would have. I have different observations now than I would have had I, you know, if I were still living there.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your story and for this beautiful novel. It makes me want to hold my kids really close. (laughs) And it was really really beautiful so okay, thank well, you thank you and thank you for having me of course my pleasure thanks again for listening to my podcast moms don't have time to read books if you liked this episode please follow me on instagram at zibbie owens and at moms don't have time to read books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things i'm up to thanks a lot Thanks to Blue Land Cleaning, our sponsor for today's episode, Blue Land Cleaning. Get your single-use pack plastic packaging, make that a thing of the past with this eco-friendly cleaning products company. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at ZibbyOwens.com.